Welcome to The Table. I'm your host, Jeff Harpel, and I'm so glad that you're here with me today. I'd like to talk a little bit about the pulpit and the piano. Of course, when I, when I say the pulpit, I'm specifically talking about the preacher, perhaps the pastor. And when I use the, the, the word piano, what I'm meaning is the musicians and singers and, um, and worship leaders, frontline, and, um, and of course, all those that are involved in music. I have a distinct privilege, I suppose. I, I grew up with a with a mother and father that were very musical. My dad played a stand-up bass, and my mother played the piano. And and of course, my brother is is a is a very accomplished pianist and organ player. Uh, been around music all my life, and was um, privileged to be a co-author of Mercy Seat years ago, and a couple other songs. And um, so I'm I'm a musician and um, and play a few instruments and sing and and so I I have that view of of the worship leader I love that view and I love that position and I've done that thousands of times flowing in the spirit singing the songs uh, ministering to the people and ministering unto God leading the people in worship. And uh, just seeing the, the anointing of the Holy Ghost fall on the congregation as we sing uh, the songs of the Lord. There's a, there is a uh, transaction that's taking place. Uh, hopefully it's a spiritual transaction between the pulpit and the piano or the preacher and the musician. And now, you know, after these many years, I'm still involved in some music when, when I'm allowed to do that. But, but... I'm the preacher and and uh, I'm the pastor, so I try to stay away from crossing over too much. And they do allow me to sing from time to time. I'm I, I like doing it. I like singing, but 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 I really I, I enjoy just uh, standing at the altar with everyone and just we're just all worshiping the Lord. The front line is singing, and 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 then comes the sermon, and and then after the sermon, uh, the musicians are there again. So I, I want to call out to all of those that are involved in worship ministry, singing ministry, uh, music ministry, uh, regardless of what place you you are. If you're a if you're a drummer or percussionist, if you're a guitarist, a bass player, organ strings, um, keys, whatever wherever you are. If you're a frontline singer, um, you are the bookends of of what we do. Now, now this is. This may not be true in all the world. It may not be true in every culture. However, in our realm, in American, in the American concept, especially the Pentecostal church, we are very demonstrative in our worship. And so we need the musician to lead us. And, and it's a wonderful thing. And, and any preacher um, with, with, uh, with any any truth in them will tell you they really want um, a wonderful worship set, uh, a time of worship. They want a moment when people are brought into the Holy of Holies and they are desperate to have a keyboard, an organ, a singer when they conclude. The altar itself uh, can, can be conducted without any music, but I'll tell you it's very dry. 
And I've been in those places where no one was at the keyboard and no one was singing or I preached in a church where there really wasn't any musicians and, and they were using a recorder or a, or some kind of uh, soundtrack, uh, computer-generated songs for worship, but there was, there was no one to play um, any altar service song, nothing at the end, and that's very difficult and very dry because music is an emotional uh, transaction. It's an emotional um, relationship between you and God. It does release um, another level of emotions um, in your own spirit. So there is such a great need for the preacher um, and the musician to be in sync and in harmony. To all the ministers and preachers, pastors, I would like to say, pray for your musicians. Pray for your worship leader because you need him or her. You need them desperately to be anointed. And and it's important that you honor them too. I've been on that side and seen uh, ministers denounce and talk down to the musicians. And then at the end, oh, now we want our musicians to come. Well, after you've spent 10, 20 minutes telling everybody how rotten all the musicians are. And maybe they were, maybe they were rotten. I know that I was probably rotten a few times, but um, uh, but you still needed them at the end. You needed them to come back. And then on the other side, the musicians pay attention to what's going on. I mean, even if you have a song ready and it's not the right song, you need to be flowing in the spirit. I would just say both the pulpit and the piano, both the preacher and the musician needs to be anointed. It's not just one uh, or the other, or one, uh, or, or no one. Both of them need to be anointed because we're working in spiritual terms. We are working with eternity and eternal lives, eternal destinies. And when they are in sync, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. It's important that that we, we recognize this. And I think for ministry uh, and pulpit preachers, maybe you're not a musician, maybe you rely upon someone to sing and play. Um, that makes it even more intense and more critical that you have a relationship with your ministry team. They need to know your heart. If anyone needs to know the preacher's heart, the, the musician, the musicians, the singers, the players, they need to know your heart. And if they know your heart and they know your spirit, then they will they will work with you and you will be blessed and i i would just i pray that this will be a common thread um throughout our 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 fellowship and and our churches i do want to quote a statement by marcus garvey he once wrote and i and i quote a people without the knowledge of their past history origin culture is like a tree without roots History is the teacher, and um, it, it, it helps us with things that are relevant and makes things relevant. Uh, to know where we are, we have to know where we've come from. And if you're looking in the Scripture, you'll see this uh, in the case of kings and monarchs and the turnover of all of that. And some kings followed the Lord, and some kings of Israel and Judah did not. Some were righteous, and most were wicked. Um, but like all kings, they died. And um, I would just say as a side note, no leader leads in perpetuity. Everything, whether good or bad, will come to an end. And then a new 
measure will take place. And this comes from, uh, this thought comes from the book of 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 1, that Joram was the son of Ahab. But the people are divided. Uh, the United Kingdom of David has long since faded. There's a north and southern, a south kingdom. Uh, they've, the land has been scarred for decades. And Joram, Jehoram is a mixed bag. He, he's going to remove some of the idols, and, and yet he will end the needless bloodshed uh, brought on by his father, Ahab. So uh, Joram is, he has, he will accommodate worship, but he still has darkness and division. And he'll promote some idolatry in groves. He'll leave some room, and yet somehow um, he's made peace with, um, with, the, with the more righteous king of Judah. His name is Jehoshaphat. So here are these two kings, and they're together. And um, uh, there's an issue in the kingdom. Um, um, Moab has stopped paying taxes, and so uh, Jehoram wants to get everyone together. He wants to unite uh, with his southern brothers. And um, he he finds Jehoshaphat. And um, they they form a bond. And, and he's going to include the king of Edom. I have no idea why they're going to put Edom into this mixed bag of disfranchised kings. But we can only presume that Edom also hated Moab. So, um, so they were scorned brothers. So the three of these kings, they, they get together. And they march their armies in a large circle for seven days until they run out of water and supplies. And they have no direction. They're without food. They don't, they're not very strong now. It's obvious they've made a poor choice to do this. They have all their gear and swords and spears and nobody to fight. And it wasn't until they were depleted that someone had the bright idea, hey, why don't we ask God for help? Let me just ask everybody, why are you waiting until you have nothing left before you call on God? Why do we wait until we are depleted before we say, you know, maybe I should pray about this? But such is the case, and when things are going well, we neglect our pursuit of God. And When we're up, prayer's down, when we're riding high and everything's running smooth, well, we don't need to fast. Why wouldn't you fast and seek godly counsel? So, of course, you know I say that kind of sarcastically and because I've witnessed so many of this, so many times this thing, these things happen in people's lives. So Jehoram is caught. He's, he's out of supplies. He's blaming God. He's a foolish man with no spiritual depth. He's a user and a taker. And, and just because he's not as bad as his father, Ahab, he's still wicked. Because in the eyes of the Lord, ladies and gentlemen, a little evil is also evil. And of course, the American church doesn't always believe that. Many still categorize sin as white lies, and as if you can color code untruth. So Jehoshaphat, however, he knows they've made a mistake. He's not like Jehoram. So instead of blaming God and their poor predicament, he, he asked what might be become one of the most critical questions in this, in his age or in any age, he says in 2 Kings 3.11, is there not here a prophet of the Lord that we may inquire of the Lord by him? Is there not a prophet somewhere that we can get some spiritual direction? We need some spiritual, we need a prophet. And someone who is familiar with these powerful prophets stands up and says, oh yes, there's a prophet. His name is Elisha, the son of Shaphat. He's here. Now I don't know why Jehoshaphat 
uh, has taken up with these other kings. I cannot tell you why he's done that. Maybe it's a lapse of judgment. Maybe he wants to have a little peace. Uh, maybe it's a fig leaf he's throwing. Um, but he finally says, wait, we need a prophet. We're depleted. We're weak. We are, obviously, we've been misguided, and we need help. And Elisha comes on the scene, and he sees these, these men. They look, they're transient kings, and he's pressed by Jehoram, the king of Israel. And he says, I, I'm, he says something, you know, as surely as the Lord lives, I'm serving him. But if I didn't have respect for Jehoshaphat, I wouldn't even look at you. I wouldn't even pay attention to you. I, I don't like you. I don't want to see you. The only reason why I'm here is because Jehoshaphat is here. So, you know, that doesn't go over well with everybody. And um, he tells the truth. They, I, they don't even know why they should be fighting Moab, but they're in this. So, I mean, if you're looking through this biblical narrative, you can see this. So, But they can't go home. If they go home empty-handed, they lose credibility. They lose authority and confidence. They don't want to go home empty. So uh, Elisha is this powerful man. He's on the scene. And Elisha is going to give them, uh, he's going to give them a word. But incredibly enough, Elisha, who has done and will do so many things, he's so powerful, um, he's going to bring a boy back to life. He, he's going to, he's going to, part the river Jordan. He's going to purify a bitter spring in Jericho. A widow will pay off her debt with the oil that flowed through empty vessels at his voice and his direction. His miracles are going to be magnificent. Through his spoken word, Gehazi becomes leprous and the enemies of Israel will be blinded. And Elisha is a powerful prophet. And he's so dedicated. He doesn't want to waste his time. He's powerful. He doesn't mince words. None of them are falling to the ground. That's why a sunken axe head swims back to the surface at Elisha's command. It's amazing what he can do. But he also knows his place, and here it is, this powerful and gifted prophet of the Most High God. He knows that the environment needs to be right and the atmosphere needs to be set. It's the turning of the soil so a seed can be planted. Hear me, all you musicians and preachers. Hear me, the piano in the pulpit. The soil needs to be turned so the seed can find its way. If you look into the New Testament, you're going to find the same thing happen. Jesus did the same thing. The daughter of Jairus, she looks dead. And Jesus would have simply raised the daughter. But when he went into the house, the Bible says they laughed him to scorn. There were professional mourners in the house of Jairus. They knew when someone had died. Jesus removes the weepers and the mourners. He has to reset the atmosphere so that he can do his perfect work. He only brought in Peter, James, and John, Jairus and his wife, and there's the daughter. He kicked everybody out. No, every, I'm going to let mom and dad come. Three of his disciples, all of you professional weepers, you're out of here because we're going to set the atmosphere before there is a powerful miracle. Now look at that precedent. And Elisha, the prophet, has no doubt of his ability, but the prophet does not set the atmosphere. Hear me, everyone. He does not set the atmosphere. That pattern was set hundreds of years prior. It was the musician, the trumpeters, 
and the singers and the worshipers led Joshua's army around Jericho. The singers ushered the Ark of the Covenant into the city of Jerusalem. The harpist stringed instruments guided the declaration of God's provision over Egypt, Philistia, and many more. They called them, and I quote, instruments of music. Elisha is so powerful, but he's not sufficient in himself, and he knows it. And I wish we could all understand that. So Elisha, he leans on someone, and Elisha says, before he prophesies, before he gives direction, Elisha says, bring me a minstrel. I need a minstrel. This is 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 15. But now bring me a minstrel. And it came to pass, when the musician played, the hand of the Lord came upon Elisha. And now he spoke. He gave direction when the atmosphere was set. I, I, I'm just going to, I'll lay this out. You can argue with it if you want but let's do this at the table. Let's have a reasonable conversation at the table today. We have to have anointed musicians, a minstrel that will set the tone because the spirit of this world is pressing. The demonic spirits, secular spirits, carnal spirits, all of them, they're pressing. And there's something about the anointed musician, that anointed singer that's playing and singing and and. Oh, the, the atmosphere is reset when people come into the church house and they're walking in and the swirling thoughts and the vain philosophies and the dark oppressions that conflict all the people. We want to worship God. We want to raise our hands. We want to hear the word of God, but our emotional track is wrecked and we need to have a new atmosphere. And the sermon could go forth, the word, the prophetic word at that but we've got to have a minstrel. We've got to have someone who would reset our emotion. So the prophet calls for the settling of the spirit world. It is a biblical precedent. The seed is waiting for the soil. The word waits for the music. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is why we begin our services with worship, with music. Bring me a minstrel. Go look back at King Saul. Turn back the hands of time in your Bible. You'll find King Saul is tormented in his own spirit. He's far from the humble man he began, he once was. Here's the scripture. Saul's servant said to him, 1 Samuel 16, Behold now an evil spirit from God troubles you. So, so let someone call and seek a person, a cunning player on a harp. And it'll come to pass, O oh, king, that evil spirit will be gone from you when you hear the musician play on the heart. And you know what Saul said? Bring me someone. Provide me now a man that can play well and bring him here to me. First Samuel 16, 17. And then they said, we know somebody, the son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite. He is a good player. He's a young man. He's valiant. He's a mighty guy. But he's also a phenomenal musician. And he is prudent. And they brought Jesse and David play. They brought, I'm sorry, they brought uh, Jesse's son, David. And Saul said to Jesse, let David, I pray thee, stand before me, for he hath found favor in my sight. And here's the last verse I'll read to you. 1 Samuel 16, 23. And it came to pass when the evil spirit from God was upon Saul, that David took an harp and played with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well. 
and the evil spirit departed from him. Even God will give ease to the spirit world when a minstrel plays. Think of that. God sent the evil spirit to torment Saul, but God also allowed the musician to give relief, the harmony, sounds, instrument of music, the preacher. We have got to have anointed musicians. And the worst thing that we can happen that can happen to us is that we have musicians that are good at playing. They're talented, but they're not anointed. They're carnal. They move the crowd with their talent, but not with the anointing of the Holy Spirit. I would say we've got to play skillfully. There's got to be skillful musicians. We have to work on our craft and we have to pray equal, equally that God will anoint it. And we have to come humbly before the Lord, not as a show, but, but as a ministry unto the Lord before the people. And we've got to understand that. It's so incredible. And the preacher and the ministry, on our side now, we've got to be grateful and we've got to lift up our musicians and we've got to make sure that we are supporting our piano players and keyboard players and organ players and thank God for them. And we've got to realize the spirit world would like to attack them and the spirit would like to, 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 to destroy, destroy our musicians. Why? Because the devil knows, the enemy knows, Satan knows the power of harmony and music and singing. He knows that. So I would just say to the pulpit and to the piano, here at the table, have a seat at the table. Talk about this need. Pray together. Ask God to give a kindred spirit so that there's no angst and instead there's support. I want, to, I want to see my musicians praising God with me. I want them to be clapping and standing while I'm preaching and while they're playing and while they're ministering in music. I want to stand. I want to worship the Lord with them. I'm not waiting my turn. No, I've come before the Lord with thanksgiving and praise in my hands and I'm grateful for them that they have taken their time to lead me in praise and worship. There's something about the spirit world that the, that the enemy wants to destroy, that this music world, the enemy wants to infect. I'll end with this story, and um, you may know this, but I, um, I've looked back and, and, and found all of this, all of these recordings, and there's writings, there's old clips, and uh, I've scoured them, uh, for them, and it, it peers back into the life of Elvis Presley. They would call him the king of rock and roll. My mother told me that when she was a little girl, um, they would not allow the cameras to show him singing from the waist down because it was so vulgar. And then uh, my mother, um, uh, my, my grandmother wouldn't allow my mother to watch him, but all of her friends uh, went over to a house. I, I can't, I don't even know what year this would have been, but uh, he was he was shown on the Ed Sullivan show, and uh, people were swooning and people were falling out, and, and it was a vulgar hip movement of Elvis Presley, the rock and roller. He grew up in a Pentecostal church, you know, and spoke in other tongues. He sang and danced his way into the annals of music history. Elvis Presley. In fact, the one word Elvis is probably one of the most recognizable names in in American history. Um, but even as he attained this grand stage, all the money adoring fans, there was an emptiness that the world could not fill. So in the 60s, the king 
this uh, king of rock and roll. He kept going back to the songs of his mother. And you can find these clips if you looked hard enough. And a lot of them are obscure. And I found them decades ago. But, but he sings songs like, he touched me. Oh, he touched me. And he sang, uh, lead me on, precious Lord. Uh, but the most notable moment happened in a short clip when he was singing, he touched me. At the height of, of his fame, right in the middle of all those uh, other songs that he was, he was singing, he, he paused. And at the height of his fame, he was already, at that time, strapped with addictions. It was, he had gained weight and, and alcohol and drugs had, it was consuming him. It was the songs, however, about God that calmed the storms of his life. And the footage is striking. It, it perplexed the Beatles at the time. They left their meeting with Elvis and said, who is this king who sings gospel songs? That's what the, the Beatles said. Who is this king of rock and roll who also sings gospel songs? Because the Beatles had, they, they had, they had no uh, history of, of, of God but, uh, or, of, or of religion, especially of this Pentecostal uh, religion. Uh, the, the band of Elvis said that there was never as much peace in rehearsals than when they broke out in church songs. And, and in the rehearsals, there was some old footage. That in the rehearsals, you can see it as the Jordanaires. They were his backup singers. You can see it with the Jordanaires. The scene is incredible. I've watched it several times. And, and man, oh, it grips my heart. A, con, a conflicted and an addicted music star the king of rock and roll, found order and peace when he sang, he touched me, oh, he touched me, and oh, the joy that filled my soul. Something happened. Uh, there, is, there is this minstrel, this, this song. It orders and soothes even the most demonic and addiction of the spirit world. Not only music, but anointed music. I'm not talking about... I'm not talking about talent. I'm not talking about ability. I, I, I enjoy that. I enjoy uh, people who have perfect pitch. Um, I enjoy uh, a, a skilled guitarist, a, a violinist, a cello, a, an organist. Man, there's nothing like a Hammond B3, someone who doesn't play it but commands it. There's, there's a few of those out there. I enjoy all of that. I've heard all the vocal tricks. That's nice. I get it. But none of those things will break the yoke of bondage like the anointed musician. And none of that will give direction to the pulpit and release his hands to preach and plant the seed. So I say as a pastor and a preacher, bring me a musician, bring me a minstrel, someone who's anointed and appointed by God. And I say to all the musicians, stay in your lane be humble before and uh, before the preacher and the pulpit and make sure you understand that people are hurting, they're wounded, they're walking into that house. They're not there to, to see you show off. They're not there to see you sing in perfect pitch or, or to see how talented you are. They're, they are there to be led into this realm and the spirit of God so that they can be healed. And if you can do that, and this, this uh, synergy of pulpit and piano, if the preacher and the worship leader and the musician can come together, there's a powerful combination there, and there's nothing like it. And it very well may be 
that these angels of heaven, the hierarchy of heaven, uh, and we, we know of archangels, Lucifer, where music emanated, Gabriel, the, the archangel of the message or a messenger. He gave message. Michael, the archangel of war and strength. Perhaps when Lucifer fell, the absence of worship, that worship leader created a gulf. Maybe it created the need for us to sing and play and praise and worship and song and melody. So bring me a worship leader, a minstrel, a singer, anointed person, an anointed man or woman, because we have to have a song. It will soothe the hearts of people. It will change the way that people receive the word. This is what James wrote. Is there any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. So I thank the Lord for the musicians. I'm so grateful. But I offer this at the table today because there's such a great need for this communication. Come to the table. Let the minstrel and the ministry of the word come together. Let the worship leader and the preacher join together in prayer and in agreement. Yes, the preacher, the pastor, you are the head. You are the leader. But don't despise the musician. You need him. You need her. And musician, don't come nonchalant or arrogant uh, before the pastor or the preacher. Um, you need him to deliver the word, the life-changing word of God. I'm so glad you came to the table. There is so much more to come.